Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, it's Heard Tell Show. It is Tuesday. It is August the 9th year of our Lord 2022. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Got a couple different things we want to try to turn the noise down on today, but they're important stories. Uh, we're going to talk about a piece that I got requested to read and comment on uh, at a Christianity Today about evangelicals in the South. Data sets that reveal some not pleasant information, but this is not the Tickle Your Ears show. This is the Get to the Truth show. Wherever that takes us, that's where we go. We're going to delve into that a little later on the program, but on a lighter note, we will end with Strays, the video game, as in Stray Cats, but it's raising a lot of money for animal shelters. We'll touch in on that in a little bit. Uh, the Ahmad Aubrey federal trial of the McMichaels and Roddy Bryant has concluded they have been sentenced. We will update that story as well. Um, Jericho Hill, Stephen Popick, he's actually the same guy. Uh, Jericho Hill is his pseudonym that he has used for years and years and years. When we recorded this interview with him, he was still using it. That's because he was part of a really important court case that actually made national headlines. We'll cover that soon with him. We're going to do an in-depth deep dive on that down in the state of Georgia about elections. So now that that's over with, he's back using his real name. But in this interview, I still call him Jericho Hill because that had not occurred yet. We're going to talk to him. He is our economics guy. We're going to delve into the economy, inflation, things like this, cost of living. Jericho Hill, one of our favorites, back on the program today. But first, I want to start right here with working from home. We've been dealing with this on and off for a little while because now that folks are kind of settling into whatever the new normal is going to be and there's a lot more working at home and a lot more hybrid work, there's some voices that don't like it. A couple of weeks ago, Peggy Noonan wrote an op-ed that we talked about, and I respect Peggy Noonan as a writer greatly, but I thought she was dead wrong in her opinion of office. And she did something that I think I'm seeing a trend in media, romanticizing the office environment. Well, here comes Malcolm Gladwell. Now, if you don't know who Malcolm Gladwell is, he's a well-known, famous author and motivational speaker. I'm going to call him that. I don't know if he'd call himself that. Uh, he has some good stuff. He talks about 10,000 hours to become an expert, and he talks a lot about reductivism. But anyway, he got a lot of flack over the weekend for criticizing working from home. This is from Market Watch, and it's written by James by James Rogers. Comments from Malcolm Gladwell about working from home have sparked a backlash on social media with critics accusing the author of hypocrisy. 
quote, it's not in your best interest to work at home, said Gladwell during an appearance on the Diary of a CEO podcast last month. If you're just sitting in your pajamas in your bedroom, is that the work life you want to live? Gladwell, author of The Tipping Point, Outliers, Blink, and a whole bunch of other stuff, explained that the feelings of belonging and feeling necessary are important. Quote, if you're not here, it's really hard to do that, he said. However, Gladwell has previously discussed his own flexible work schedule. In a column for the Wall Street Journal in 2020, he described how he often writes from coffee shops. In 2005, he told The Guardian he hates desks and starts his workday using laptops from his sofa. Said against this backdrop, his stance on working from home comments have sparked some interesting responses on social media. A lot of people calling him a hypocrite will spare you that. In the survey released earlier this year by software company Qualtrics, workers reviewed flexibility as more a matter of when than where. Some 41% of employees said they would prioritize the ability to choose which hours of the work day to work, while 25% they would prioritize what days of the week they would work. Just 14% said they would prioritize the ability to work remotely from any location. What does this all mean? Is he a hypocrite? Yeah, probably a little bit, but remember, he's living in a different world than the average worker does. His business is telling businesses about workers and workers about businesses. A cynical person might point out that those really big corporate speaking fees people like Malcolm Gladwell get are impossible unless there's a lot of people in the office to hear them. Now they can make you sit on a Zoom call, but I'm guessing those probably don't pay quite as well. But that would be the cynical thing, and we don't like to be cynical here. So yeah, he's being a hypocrite, but I think it's more than that. I think it's falling into the same trap that our Peggy Noonan fell into. Some folks romanticize what the workplace is. I understand the old school view of this. I do. You met people. You networked. You learned people skills. You learned how to deal with folks. I get all that. And it's scary because the new generation, they don't do that that way, and they don't see it that way. I saw it in my own children when they shut down the schools. Their social networks were fine because they were all online anyway. They sat and talked to each other all day. In a lot of cases, they talked to each other more than they did previously. That generation's moving on. The, the generation that went through high school and COVID and college and COVID are now going to start moving into the workplace. And they've already been told that everything is secondary and you can do a lot of this stuff online. They don't have a bias against it. In fact, a lot of them prefer that. Think about people who might get picked on or might have prejudices or might have sensory issues or a whole list of items of why they don't want to go into the office. Our guest today, Stephen Popetnik, Jericho Hill, when he's on the show, he's talked about it before. He mostly works from home. He works for one of those four-letter government agencies, cuts down on his commute, which is brutal. There's a lot of reasons people don't want to work in the office, and they're not always detrimental to whatever the company in the office is trying to do. In fact, a lot of those businesses quietly are looking at their infrastructure and their overhead and looking at those empty office buildings and realize, you know what, we can save a whole lot of money letting these people work from home most of the time and just coming in every once in a while. I think you're going to see more and more of that. Important to also note, this mostly applies to white collar jobs and tech jobs and things like this. People that still work in the service sector where you have to, you know, actually work and deal with customers, they don't get this option. Laborers don't get this option. A lot of other people don't get this option. So there's an important perspective to understand here. If you have the option to work from home, you've already got a little bit of privilege. But the people above them need to understand that the people that have the privilege to work from home are also going to have some options. Just deriding them and mocking them for it and telling them that it's bad for them when they've discovered that it's good for their particular lifestyles, that's not going to go well for you. And in this environment and this economy and with workers being able to pick their spots, that's going to send them looking elsewhere for work that will accommodate them. 
You can either grow and evolve on this issue or you're going to get left behind. Work from home is here to stay, especially in the hybrid modes or at least in the occasional modes. Just embrace it. Don't be stuck in the mud. Don't be a rotary phone in a digital cell phone age. Just go with it. Evolving upward is a good thing. And so is working from home. Not in every case, but in a lot of cases. Stop with the one-size-fits-all offices and stop with the one-size-fits-all for home. The truth is somewhere in the middle. More Hertel right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Going back to Hertel, just a quick update. The Ahmad Aubrey story, um, the federal trial um, for the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan Jr. has concluded. Gregory and Travis McMichael, reading from CNN here, um, were sentenced Monday to life in prison after their federal convictions this year on interference with rights, which is a hate crime, along with attempted kidnapping and weapon use charges. Now, this is the federal again. The state crimes is what they were already all three serving life sentences with. The McMichaels are both serving without possibility of parole. Roddy Bryant got mercy, so he will be eligible for parole eventually. Uh, their neighbor, back to CNN, William Roddy Brown Jr., the third man involved in Aubrey's killing, was sentenced by U.S. District Court Judge Lisa Godby Wood to 35 years, which will be served at the same time as his state sentence. All three men are already serving life sentences for their conviction in state court for the murder charges relating to the killing of the 23-year-old black man, including felony murder. Aubrey's killing months before the police killing of George Floyd was in some ways a harbinger of the nationwide protests that erupted. Travis McMichael's attorney, Amy Lee Copeland, argued Monday for her client to remain in federal custody and to serve out his prison terms within the Federal Bureau of Prisons rather than the Georgia Department of Corrections. Travis McMichael fears for his life in state prison, Copeland said, telling the court her client received hundreds of threats, can't imagine why, forcing him to serve the time in Georgia state prison would essentially amount to a backdoor death penalty that could leave McMichael vulnerable to vigilante justice, acknowledging the quote-unquote rich irony. First of all, prison violence is a thing and it shouldn't be tolerated, but it is what it is. Uh, The McMichael sure does feel different when he's the one that could possibly be tracked down and ran down by a group of people he's powerless to defend himself against, as opposed to being the one in the truck doing the running down in. Apparently, the fear has finally sipped through his prejudice. I hope he enjoys the rest of his life in prison. He richly deserves it for doing what was in any way, shape, or form definition of the word, a lynching of an innocent man. More Hertel right after this.
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, you see him, so you know what we're talking about. Jericho Hill, economist du jour. He works at a four-letter, not a three-letter government agency in his day job, but his opinions are his and his alone, even though they're usually mostly correct. Uh, Jericho Hill, welcome back, buddy. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. And it turns out that uh, the designation of three- and four-letter uh, agency actually matters because uh, some uh, Congress critters have been calling for three-letter agencies to be abolished recently. <laughs> It depends on the agency. I'm not again it in principle, but I need to see the fine print. Uh, four-letter government agencies are like golf. They're four-letter words because all the other four-letter words were taken for nefarious purposes. But Jericho Hill brings us great information. We love having him on the program. That's why he's on here so frequently. Normally, we talk economic news, but there's no economic news in the headlines. So I guess we'll just talk about sports or something, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's nothing going on. Let's start here. I'm going to ask the dumb question because I think it needs to be asked at the lowest level for people to kind of get their arms around it. Everybody's arguing over, are we, aren't we in a recession? Everybody's arguing over what inflation is and isn't doing it. Practically, monetary policy-wise, I know politically and culturally it matters. Does whether or not we call it a recession actually matter that much? Not really. Um, I wanna, now, Steve, I, you just lit the internet on fire. You can't say it doesn't matter, but I'm. that's why I ask you these hard questions. Yeah. So, Monetary so, policy, is it really changing anything? Is it just us being loud? Does it really matter whether it's an inflation or not? Because we're going to kind of do the same principles, whether it is over or not over the line. They're going to do the same reactionary stuff, right? So what matters is how policymakers are doing to uh, respond to the pressures of the day. So uh, the analogy that I've been using for the last couple of days is this is akin to you going to the doctor's office uh, where you have, you've hurt your leg and you're pretty sure you've got a fracture and the doctors are arguing over whether it's a small fracture or a medium fracture. And in the meantime, you're on the doctor's bed and you're just like, please, dear Lord, just give me a freaking painkiller already, you know, worry about this other stuff later. So that's sort of what's going on. I think, you know, I don't think it really matters. Like everybody agrees that like we're in a weird economic cycle. That there are that there's a downturn in GDP. Is this a recession? Is it not a recession? It's sort of one of those things that I think it's being played for a political football game. But what really matters is how are policymakers responding to it. It's not going to make a hill of beans difference to the Fed, right? Whether this is called a recession or not, in terms of the Fed's policy and what they're doing with interest rates. Um, you know, and I think your your guest. Uh, uh, from a couple of days ago, Andrew Salter. Hopefully I got his name right. Alexander um, Salter. Alexander Salter. I apologize. He's a great guest, by the way. Um, you know, there are, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing folks get confused or, or politicians are deliberately confusing. We use a rule of thumb in economics for a recession. Two quarters of negative GDP growth. That's a rule of thumb. That's a proxy. That's like saying, Tom Brady's on your team, you're going to win the football game. That's a really good prediction. It doesn't always work. The, the folks that actually define whether we're in a recession or not, this, this group of economists, they look at more than just negative GDP growth. There's other factors like what's going on with personal consumption expenditures, consumer spending, uh, unemployment, employment, what's happening to wages, etc. So when we get into that picture, right, the rule of thumb, which works, you know, 90% of the time, doesn't really line up with what we're seeing because we've got some very positive indicators about the economy and we've got some very negative indicators on the economy. And I want to go back to my analogy. 
we want the doctors to stop arguing for a brief moment and just give us a painkiller. Yeah. Jericho Hill joining us, dispensing opiates for the people when it comes to economic information. I did not say opiates. Did you I see what I did killer. there? Yeah, did I said a painkiller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why you just brought it up, let's just go ahead and go after another buzzwordy thing here. We keep, I, this is my fourth or fifth interview with you now where we talk about how the, the really weird thing that's blowing everybody's mind is all this economic stuff and the unemployment rates low. That's the number that's just breaking the models. And the labor market's oh. doing good, and like you know, workers still have a lot of bargaining power over wages. Okay, yeah. So let me ask the dumb guy question again. I asked it about the recession term. Is unemployment is the unemployment number just not mattering that much? Because if we keep having these conversations every couple of months of well, the unemployment number's low, but lab- labor price and labor resort and labor this and labor that and wages are down and what does it really matter that much if we just keep having to blow over it every time we have this conversation? I think it. I think it, I think it does matter a little bit because it would impact sort of what policy prescription you want to have, and it's good to know that hey, we actually have really low unemployment. Um, and, and and there are others that would say, well, yes, but you know, there's folks that have dropped out of the labor market, uh, and that's true. We're still not back to what prime EPOP uh, employment population ratio uh, was pre-crisis. I think we still have a percentage point to go on there. Um, you know, so we still have a little bit of, of a slack there. But, yeah, I mean, so it, it matters in sort of like what policies we're going to be pursuing. But at the end of the day, you know, what I think folks are going to be more keyed on is, hey, this inflation thing's really biting at budgets. You know, let's just let's just, let's focus on what's causing the pain right now. And let's worry about the technical details later. You know, I, I just want to say, like, this isn't the great financial crisis recession where we had double digit unemployment and people dropped out of the labor market for several years or couldn't get a job. And that has all sorts of terrible effects on families and households. Here, everybody seems to be pretty much employed, but you know maybe some of their wage gains are being eaten up. And as you said, you had a great piece about what was going on with um, uh, Gen Z and their labor supply and how they were responding and how employers are actually now responding to giving Gen Z different employment opportunities, often like how they're also trying to recruit uh, working, uh, soon-to-be working moms uh, in factories, right? You know, we've talked about that previously. Yeah, and the reason I got into that Gen Z piece, we'll link back to that because I found that fascinating. I, I hate the boomer trope, but I, there's no way to get around it in this because it really there's some data here. The boomers were complaining about the millennials not working their entry-level jobs. Well, the reason was now, come to find out, the boomers were eating all the jobs up, and they're the ones complaining about it, and now we got the data to kind of show that. When you're an economist and you have something, gener- I don't what I don't even know the right term to ask. Is it generationally weird? Is it whatever term you use? When you have an outlier like that of something that hasn't really happened before, it happens once and then it stops happening because now the, yeah. the Zoomers are taking those jobs right back up like previous generations do. As an economist, what do you do with an anomaly like that? Do you study it for the future? Do you go, oh, that's an anomaly? What do you do with hindsight and economics? Because most of what y'all do that we, the public, want is projecting in the future and telling us what's coming. This seems to be something important that we probably shouldn't just brush past. We should probably talk about especially how we covered it at the time and how wrong so many people had it, right? Yeah, I think, you know, so so look, if we go back, you know, one of the causes of why, um, for lack of a better term, Zoomer or not, uh, Boomer workers stayed in the labor force uh, longer than what we would have expected from previous generations is right about the time they were starting to think about retirement, right, that first time, something called the Great Financial Crisis happened. 
and they had to stay in the labor market a bit more and keep keep working so that their stock portfolios, their retirement portfolios could recover, right? Um, you know, and so yeah, that that would that would that would keep people, you know, that would that would that would keep jobs that that would have been potential openings. You know, they would have stayed in. You know, those openings would not have been there. Um, so yeah, we we as economists, you know, what we try to do is we try to look at what happened in the past in in, in scenarios, and then apply those scenarios to what we think is going to happen in the future, right? And those should sort of help inform our our future policy decisions. We saw something similar happen in the past, so maybe we should do something like that. You know, like what worked to resolve that issue in the past, we should think about doing now in the future. You know, I believe uh, in comments this morning, I call this, this seems to be more like a 2001 recession, if it's a recession, than a 2008 recession, right? Where it's sort of like the 2001 was mild, pretty quick, you know, resolved itself. And this this recession here in 2008 it took a long time to unwind. You know, we are, we're we're anticipating that this is this is just a this is a relatively relatively shallow or blippy kind of recession that we're seeing. Like to keep in mind, a lot of the negative GDP in the second quarter was still the result of companies not getting their inventory situation right, which seems to be something that we keep harping on for the last several quarters in a row. Okay, so here's another question because you just brought it up. All of that is assuming that it's a blip, that everything stays the same as it is right now on the current trajectory. What's the odds that all this tinkering we're doing because of the crisis, however you want to define that, we could possibly make this worse? Because everybody acts like everything we're going to do is make it better. There's a propensity that we could actually make this worse and prolong it also, right? Well, you know, uh, so one, you know, the price of oil is relatively outside of our control. There are things we can do in the long run to uh, have more resiliency against the price of, of oil and other fuel costs and energy costs. I should be, I should just simply call that energy costs as a whole, um, which, you know, could involve some short-term spending, but, but has long-term benefits. Um, you know, how the war in Europe, you know, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, how that resolves. There's that simmering conflict that we see in Kazakhstan. You know that that you know the geopolitical game being played there between Russia and China that you've also had people on to talk about, and, and I, I really appreciate that episode, by the way. Um, you know, so yeah, we we try to you know we're we're making guesses as to like what we think is going to be the you know the what we call the shock that might happen in the future. There, there's all sorts of things that could happen. Space aliens come down tomorrow. Well, there goes all of our predictions. You know. Um, we could have a really bad climate disaster. We could have a bad hurricane. We could have, you know, uh, we could have civil unrest because of a police violence action or something like that. Again, we we don't know. We could so have we, one oil refinery go down and it will sh- screw this whole country up because we haven't built one since the seventies. But we could have just a tanker, an example. We could have a tanker get stuck in a canal again. Oh <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm so, a logistics guy. That one hurt my soul. So, so there's there's a lot of so, yes. Those are the downside risks. And again, you know, as I thought about. The, the COVID crisis and what we got wrong, you know, team transitory, so to speak, or what's happening to inflation. Like, I think part of us that were on team transitory got wrong was that we just simply assumed that we are just being hit with a string of bad luck after bad luck after bad luck of things that we just weren't expecting and they just kept happening. And they seem to always be downside risk, never upside risk, always downside. Who's they, to say that luck has changed, right? So, you know, we... We sort of assume a neutral setting 
but you know to to be mindful that it can go up and down. Yeah, well, only having downside risk that that's to an economist like a lawyer only you know defending innocent people. Like yeah. you're not going to get that. That's part of the job, right? It's just kind of yeah. baked into the cake. Um, Jericho Hill joining us. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to put him on the spot. We're going to go through some economic headlines, right? Ripped from the headlines. We're going to throw him right at him, get him to react about it. We're also going to continue to talk about inflation and are we, aren't we in a recession? Cost of living. It all goes together in a nice big ball and winds up in our culture and politics. He's got to do it. Jericho Hill continues with us on her tell right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Our friend, he's an economist. He's got letters after his name. He's real smart. He's also personable, and we like him. Jericho Hill, a frequent guest here on Hertel program. We love having him. All right, buddy. Hot seat time. We're going to go through some headlines because here's the thing. I see, I've been doing this for a little while now. There's a pattern to how the economy is covered. I know we have the joke on social media about how everything is unexpectedly, right? There's a pattern to how news media and social media covers economics. So I'm just going to read through some headlines. These are all headlines from within the last 24 hours. We record this. This is all major publications. This ain't crank stuff. Let's see your reactions to it. And let's see if we can find a couple patterns. So, in so here. none of this is from the Babylon Bee is what you're saying. There's no Babylon Bee. There's no onion. There's no, no funny business. All right. Uh, nothing from the Logan Free Press. Where This is all on the up and up. Okay. Uh, let's start. CNN. Headline. I'm just going to read the headline. You react. The strange reason America's economy is shrinking. Um, yeah, that's not really a helpful headline. <laughs> well, maybe this one will help. Wall Street Journal, 19 hours difference here. U.S. economy still shrinking. So I guess they're keying on, um, yeah, I guess they're keying on the, on the GDP numbers. So, um, yeah, that, that's what they're writing about. They're just solely focused on GDP. Well, and just in case we didn't get the point yet, New York Times, exact same time frame within a couple of hours. Uh, big tech is proving resilient as the economy cools. Oh, we're not shrinking now. Now we're cooling. How does that one land with you? Uh, you know, I, I think I think it's more correct to say to say shrink, although I would simply, you know, I think that that word's a little charged, too. But cooling. So so the New York Times is is, is, is I think, in some respects, trying to look at more than just one facet but you know I, I think that that in and of itself like also has its own particular sort of dent you know the other two headlines that you read to me you know seem to be more exactly specifically focused on gdp shrunk year over year and you're correct because new york times goes into the tech company slowing their hiring processes so well yeah. spotted uh here we go Reuters, of course major international newsing Apple, the company, not the fruit, forecasters, faster sales growth, strong iPhone demand, despite glum economy. So we went from slowing to uh, cooling. Now we're glum economy. Uh, what do you think of Reuters? Uh, I would hesitate to call this a gloomy economy. Again, I, I, I see there are good aspects going on and very bad aspects. 
they're just trying to contrast that Apple's having unexpectedly good news, so to speak, using that lovely word, unexpectedly. Uh, NPR, U.S. economy just had a second quarter of negative growth, period. Is this a recession? Question mark. Probably the best headline out of all of them. <laughs> yeah? You like that one? Why? Uh, you know, it, it, it's it, it's factual. We had two quarters of negative GDP growth. And then the question is, is this a recession? And then I'm sure the article goes into the, the various caveats that go on there. But that's that's at least the correct characterization of, of what is going on. Now, I wish all these that we had was like, hey, Americans are still feeling pain. Yeah. But. Yeah. And we're going to link to these, by the way, so you can read them in your entirety if you so choose to. OK, here we go. Washington Post, something I use a lot on this program. Uh, GDP, report, GDP report shows U.S. economy shrank again in the second quarter. Now, here's the interesting part of this headline, though, because of the way they do it. Here's the subheading. The latest GDP reading comes at a time of mounting worries about the economy's resilience. Yeah. So there they're focusing on uh, basically what we see from surveys uh, that shows how do people feel about this economy right now. And so, th- and I think this is an interesting point. And I, I, I'm still trying to struggle to understand why the American public is sort of feeling this way. When we do surveys of sort of economic, you know, temperature, you know, economic, you know, feelings, whatnot, today people are more gloomy and pessimistic and downrating the economy than during the worst part of the great financial crisis. I have a Mm. hard time squaring that because like, again, for me, you know, one, you're, if you're unemployed, you know, that that's really bad. You're, you're, we have high inflation. So some of your earnings are being eroded. The way I try to explain this paradox is that, if you're if you're if it's an unemployment you know driven recession, which is what the great financial crisis was in some respects, right, with double digit unemployment, which we never hit this time around, uh, a small minority of people are feeling a hell of a lot of the pain. And in this whatever this is, this downturn, I'll just call it a downturn because I think that's closer to what it is than the recession itself. Then this downturn. We don't have unemployment. Everybody's got their jobs, but everybody is feeling the pain of inflation for the most part. So maybe that explains the paradox of of why folks are viewing this economy as worse than the great financial crisis. All right. This one's CNN International, but I love the (laughs) – somebody that runs a website, this one's – I would absolutely just – tear somebody to pieces if they sent me a subheading that was this far off the headline. Here it is, CNN International. Europe's economy surprisingly grew last quarter, easing recession fears for now, for now's in parentheses, subheading. But Germany, the region's biggest economy, stagnated in the second quarter, official data showed on Friday. Inflation continues to push higher. Doom huh? cells. Doom <laughs> cells. How's that one hit you? I, again, that's what it tells me. It's like, hey, that Europe got good news overall, but let's focus on one piece of the puzzle. And, and by the way, that, that Germany is a very big part of, of the European economy and rightly should be focused on because, you know, it, it sort of helps drive their ship. But, yeah, it, it's sort of like, hey, we got good news, but all these other things. Like a doctor's coming to you that says, hey, your cancer just got cured, but you've got all these other things. 
And it's like, but my cancer got cured, right? Yeah, really. Okay, pair of headlines from Bloomberg because these are just, I just want your reaction. Uh, Yellen, that would be Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, the Honorable Janet Yellen. Yellen says U.S. economy not seeing recession conditions now. Boy, there's a couple qualifiers in that sentence, but go ahead. What do you think? So, yeah, she is being more like the folks that actually date recessions, the folks from the National Bureau of Economic Research, where they're looking at multiple factors. So she's providing that necessary caveat, um, you know, instead of saying, well, we sort of, we're sort of, like, we're, we're not, we're not in a recession right now, but of course we still have the risk of, of, of having that if, say, the employment picture started to change, right? You've seen a bunch of articles, you even referenced some of them, the tech companies stopped hiring and and you get some of that, well, now you're seeing job postings go down. Yeah, in certain respects, but the labor market's still really tight for vast majority of folks. So we're just not seeing the labor market story being a story of recession. But again, Yellen's job is to, right, be a part of team executive Biden and, you know, essentially downplay the recessionary or the the downturn risk right now one more because you just mentioned biden uh i find this headline insulting to my intelligence but we'll see how it lands with you bloomberg headline biden loses bragging rights against china with u.s economy fading there's two bullet points under this president had touted forecasts for u.s to grow more than china and u.s expansion now seen slowing as inflation takes a bite China has its own issues right now with yet another lockdown. And who knows whether the statistics coming out of China in any way reflect the reality that's going on in China. At least with our our U.S. statistics, we have some belief, and I think a very good belief, that the data scientists producing those estimates are actually getting it right, right? It's very transparent here. It's not so transparent over there. So, yeah, I, I... I, I react poorly to, to to that because we don't really understand the full picture of what's going on in China and other headlines that have come out of of the Chinese economy. Right, do not paint a very good picture of what their economy is doing right now. Funny you mention that because I got one of them right here. Uh, Forbes, uh, not a crank publication. Way to segue it. Uh, by the way, China. <laughs> Some other time we'll dig into this. China has a workforce of 750 million people. Our whole country has 330 million people. You you can't do apples to apples with China in a lot of ways, not just because of the Communist Chinese Party. It's a totally different beast than what we're doing. So you're going to always look dumb doing that comparison anyway. It's also a totally different economy, right? So you think about the U.S. as a service sector-based economy. We talked about that one of the last times. No, we were having, you and I were chatting. China is largely manufacturing still. Those are going to react differently to different sort of uh, different sort of world economies. Yeah. All right. Last one. Forbes. China's economy is still looking worryingly weak. Key data shows, and this is more recent than the other headline, but about the same time frame. So I just love that one. So go ahead, juxtapose those those two for me. Yeah. Well, the latter is probably more closer to the truth than the former. Thank you for that in-depth analysis, Mr. Economist. <laughs> no, it's true because it, I agree with you. You can't trust the numbers coming out of China. You can't trust the Western bloviating about the numbers coming out of China. Uh, just always be very suspicious of those and numbers. We, but we know that the China, like we know that China has their zero, you know, zero, zero COVID policy. 
and they still have a policy of lockdowns in various places. And I'm not getting into whether that's a good policy or a bad policy, right? I'm coming into a little There is a cost. The U.S. Yeah. has said we are now vaccinated enough or we no longer care enough, whichever you want to pick, um, that we are not going to be shutting down our ports or anything else. And it's going to be essentially business is somewhat usual. Still, you know, there's still things that are different about our economy. But, you know, we're, we're open back up, right? People are going on vacations. We don't have lockdowns anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, that, you know, whether or not, you know, we're right in that policy versus China, we'll know in 10 years. Yeah. With China, you always watch their actions, not their words and not their propaganda. Their actions will tell you what they're actually doing. Don't don't read the pamphlet on the Silk Road. Watch where they're actually building stuff. You know, that kind of thing. Just watch their actions. They're not real subtle in what they do. They're they're very good at what they say, not matching that. But watch what they do because you, you can't hide it in their actions. So that's the way to handle that. Jericho Hill, great stuff today. That's fun going through the headlines. That's a little easier than going through the theory of things. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until they see you again on Hertel, which will be very soon. Well, you can always find me on Twitter at Motoconomist. And uh, essentially, I'll be uh, enjoying the month of August because uh, I will uh, not only be watching my little girl turn four years old, uh, I apparently also have a birthday. And uh, just I won't disclose what my actual age is because I'm getting up there in years. <laughs> You're going to be another one of those that turns out to be younger than me. It's going to make me mad and throw things. So let's just move along. Uh, happy uh, birthday, my friend. I, I, I think you and I are actually about the same age. I hope so, because I'm, I'm running out of folks that I'm younger than. Uh, happy birthday, my friend. Your daughter is just, a, matter of fact, she was just being born when we first started um, becoming friendly. So it's kind of an interesting mile marker that she's for. It's like, holy God, I've known this guy four years already. Yeah, uh, we, you. We, We've built her first playhouse outside. So. Oh, my Lord. It's four, four. Once you get past, everybody says two. No, three's the worst. Four to about eight, nine, ten, depending on the kid. That's the happy spot. That's all the good years. So just enjoy it, my friend. I will um, definitely enjoy it. Yeah, Jericho Hill, you do great work. This was great. We'll do it again real soon. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. Have a good day. Anytime, sir. I'm back to her tell. Okay, we've told you before, this is not the tickle your ears show. This is not the show where we go at a demographic and just tell them what they want to hear. We talk about tough, hard stuff. This is one of them. We're going to talk about evangelical Christianity. I don't like that term. Uh, I've studied theology both academically and just for fun for 20 years. I've got my reasons. I won't bore you with it, even though technically by any measure of the word that's traditionally defined, I is one. So that's me, evangelical, white, Protestant, however you want to break it down. I'm one of them, too. But there's some data and there's some concerning stuff that needs to be addressed. I was asked uh, by some of our followers and listeners and the audience to read this piece in Christianity Today. I did so. I made some brief remarks on Twitter, but I want to get a little bit more in depth in some of the data here. Um, this piece was written by Daniel K. Williams. It's dated the 2nd of August. It's called White Southern Evangelicals Are Leaving the Church. There's a lot to go through here. I'm just going to take one little slice of it. So go to the links in the show notes. Please read the whole piece for yourself. Um, but this is the data from the surveys they did. Okay, now two points I want to make about the data on here. It's older data. Uh, it's 2018 data and their premise data that they use is from 2014. 
So this may not be up to date as much as they think it is. So I want to throw that little tidbit out. There's another tidbit of this that after I go through the data, I'm going to bring up that I don't, it's objections too strong a point, but I think it's important context that this piece itself meets. All right. So from the piece, what does the 2018 GSS, that's the data set they're working off of, reveal about white Southerners who still identify as Protestants, but never attend church, never attend church or go no more than once a year. First, they're numerous. According to the GSS survey, 45% of white Southerners self-reported attending church no more than once a year. If lapsed evangelical Protestant, that's a that's in quotes, were a denomination, it would be by far the largest religious body in the South. Second, they're not Democrats among the non-churchgoers or once a year attenders who voted in 2016. They supported Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton by more than two to one. They're also deeply committed to, quote, colorblind conservatism and the politics of law and order. 66% said that the courts in their area did not deal harshly enough with criminals. Only 11% said the courts deal too harshly. 77% agreed that it was sometimes necessary to discipline a child with a good hard spanking. That's in quotes. Again, I'm just reading this. I'm just telling you what the data sets. They oppose, quote, preferential hiring for blacks by a margin of more than four to one. Likewise, a margin of more than four to one, they agree with this statement. This is a quote. Irish, Italians, Jewish and many other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same, end quote. That's the quote from the data set. They agreed with that by a margin of four to one. When asked why blacks on average had, quote, worse job income and housing than whites, nearly half said it was because they, quote, just don't have the motivational willpower to pull themselves out of poverty, end quote. Again, I'm reading from the data set here. They were deeply suspicious of most institutions, including medicine, government, labor unions, religious organizations, and especially the media. 65% said they had hardly any, quote-unquote, confidence in the press. The only institution they expressed a great deal of strong confidence was the military at 72% said they had a great deal of confidence in the military. Although they strongly support legalizing marijuana and saw nothing morally wrong with homosexuality or premarital sex, the same was not true of abortion. 62% opposed the legalization of elected abortion. A majority said the Supreme Court had acted wrongly in ruling against classroom prayers in public school. Exempting views on marijuana and sex. Most of these sentiments were also shared by white evangelicals in the South who regularly attend church. Even beliefs about the Bible did not differ too much between them. 89% said the Bible was the inspired word of God. Only 8% considered it a book of fables or legends. Nearly one-third said the Bible was to be taking literally, this is a quote, word for word. In short, the white Protestants in the South who don't attend church anymore haven't changed their politics or more of their religious beliefs. They're still generally fundamentalist when it comes to the Bible, and they're still strongly law and order pro-military Republicans who believe in a Southern civil religion where people are free to play in schools but not get abortions. They still identify as Protestant Christians, and based on other surveys, they probably still call themselves evangelical, although the survey doesn't directly say that. But their understanding of evangelical Protestant Christianity has taken away most of the grace and left behind a deeply suspicious individualism where law and order and self-defense are paramount. That's me reading from the Christianity Today piece. There's a lot of controversial stuff in here. Read the entire piece for yourself. We'll link to it. Here's my observation I told you about that I think is important context here. And I don't want to get preachy because everybody's church beliefs are a little different. But this is backed up by some data sets and is backed up by a whole lot of people who have ever been around church folks of all stripes and of all flavors. The truth of the matter is the reason that folks, especially in Christianity, traditionally need to be in a church 
is a church provides two things you never get anywhere else. You get support, but you also get oversight and authority. People with strongly held beliefs who no longer have communal support and no longer are under authority of somebody else will tend to go towards their worst prejudices, their worst biases, and their worst inclinations of their own human nature because they don't have anybody to put a guardrail up for them. That's what a healthy church is supposed to do. They have guardrails. You have leadership. You have pastors. You have elders. Whatever system your church has that holds you accountable in things like behavior and beliefs and things like this. If you're not going to church, you don't get that. So you start getting more and more and more into whatever your own feels are. And your feels are filled and filled up with your own prejudices and your own human nature. That's why here on Her Tell, we keep a wide perspective. Doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything, but you need to always test yourself with a wide spectrum of stuff to make sure you haven't siloed yourself down in a hole that isn't reality and isn't truth. It's just how you feel about something, but that's not the reality of it. Christians that are no longer in churches are going to trend towards authoritative, and they're going to trend towards whatever they believe because they're not going to have any guardrails anymore on that. And they're going to want politicians that feel the exact same way. And if you're going to be honest and look in the mirror and look at the last six years or so in America, you're going to know everything I just said is absolutely correct. And we got a bunch of these folks running around. More Hurt Tell right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, we try to end on an uplifting note. We've talked before about the gaming community's ability to raise ungodly amounts of money. Good for them. This one's over a game called Strays, where you play a stray, as in stray cats and dogs. (laughs) This is from Voice of America. A new video game that includes a brave cat is popular with cat lovers. Some of them are using the game to raise money for real cats. The game was released last month. It's called Stray. A stray animal is one without a home. Many stray cats and dogs lives on city streets. Thanks to online fundraising services, though, gamers are playing Stray Live for audiences to raise money for animal shelters and other cat-connected organizations. Annapurna Interactive, the game's creator, publicized Stray by offering two cat rescue and adoption agency copies of the game to give away. Live streaming gameplay for charity is not new, but quick popularity of Stray It's a bit unusual. It was the fourth most watched game on the day. It was first shown on Twitch, the video game streaming site. Viewers watch as players send the game's cats through the city to solve problems and escape enemies. The cat in the game does all this while doing usual cat activities like scratching, jumping, or hitting things off table. Uh, Just a brief note, I wonder if it's like my cat and also chases dogs, makes an irritation out of itself, and demands to be hand-fed his food strike. You know, cats are really high maintenance, but that might not make for as much of a fun game. 
back to the piece. Oh, also had to take him to the vet last week. That's always fun. Back to the piece. About 80% of the game's creative teams are cat owners and cat lovers, the game's producer said. Quote, I certainly hope that maybe some people will be inspired to help actual strays in real life, said Swan Martin Reggae. He is a game producer of Stray and works at the Blue 12 Gaming Studio in France. Uh, so I probably mispronounced his name. I apologize. Annapurna Interactive, probably mispronouncing that one too. Double your money back if I say things wrong on this here Herd Tell show, though. Contacted the Nebraska Humane Society to discuss a partnership before the game's launch on July 19th. The Humane Society jumped at the chance. Marketing specialist Brenda Gibson said, The whole game and the whole culture around the game, it's all about a love of cats, Gibson said. It meshed really well. With the shelter and our mission, the shelter received four copies of the games to give away. People donated $5 for a chance to win one of the games in just one week. The shelter raised over $7,000. Most of the 550 donors were new to the shelter, including people from Germany and as far away as Malta. Uh, Jeff Legaspi is Annapurna's interactive marketing director. He said it made sense for the game's launch to do something impactful or to make powerful influence. He added that he hopes the game will bring more awareness to adopting and not shopping for a new pet. The game is available on PlayStation and the Stream Online game platform. Stream Monitor, Stream DB says Stray has been the number one purchase game for the past two weeks. There is links in here if you want to look into the actual charities that are linked in the piece for Voice of America. By the way, this ledge behind me on top of the electric fireplace, Kenobi has fire. Kenobi has video bombed her tell recordings more than once. We've put it out on social media. You can find it on mine at Fourth of the Fire on the Twitter. That'll do it for Herd Tell today. Be nice to your pets. Um, all of them. We have multiple ones here. It's a zoo, but love your pets. More importantly, though, love each other. Take care of yourselves. Your community and your nation and your world get better when you take care of the people around you first. So do that. And we'll continue to try to bring you something important here on Herd Tell, turning down the noise of the news cycle so you can discern the times we live in. Love to hear from you. HerdTellShow at gmail.com. HerdTellShow on the Twitter. We've put together whole shows just based off reader response and or questions, so we love hearing from you. Till next time, wherever you are, across the street, around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you and yours are well-fed. And we will talk to you again next time on more Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.